In 2020, we did a survey of the whole Bible. It started in January, ended in December during a pandemic, and thank God, honestly, that he gave us the insight to be going through the Bible during that difficult time. It worked out awesome. Then we started 2021, I realized, you know, we were thinking, boy, people were missing out on some really beautiful moments in life. And so we studied Ecclesiastes to kind of teach us to don't miss a moment, <laughs> enjoy every bit of it. And so now we're looking at 1 Peter, and I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. But to understand 1 Peter, you, as a matter of fact, you can't understand 1 Peter unless you understand the context of 1 Peter. Context is everything in this book. And the context of 1 Peter is a single word, Nero, a man, a single man, a puppet of Satan himself. He was lust-driven for power, and he would do anything to anyone to get power and to maintain power. He killed his mother for power. He killed his wife. He killed his second wife. Who would marry that guy the second time? He wanted to rebuild Rome in his image, leave a mark forever, and the Senate wouldn't let him. So he burned Rome to the ground. In July of 64 AD, Rome was set ablaze for six days. And then the fire was quenched, and then it wasn't. It burned another three. And by the time the, thing, the, the fire cleared, there wasn't a lot to show. And the people were revolting against Nero and his power. And so... Nero and his media machine blamed a group of people that were somewhat a bit of a minority, obscure, and not all that popular anyway. They were followers of Jesus the Christ, Christians. He blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome. And so the context of 1 Peter is the persecution of the church. And when we say persecution, Nero would take old animal skins, like a lion skin, and he would sew a human being into those lion skins and then release them in an amphitheater, and then wild dogs would be turned on that person, and they would be devoured and torn apart for those people's entertainment. That's the context of 1 Peter. That church in Rome, it, it was like here they have a husband and a wife and boys and girls. And Nero didn't care. He would tie men and women and boys and girls to these posts outside of his palace and cover them with tar and then have celebrations at night and light those tar poles on fire. And those Christians would die in agony as people sipped their wine. That's the context of 1 Peter. It's a book that is written in persecution. When they talk about trials, they're talking about losing their life or their family. To, to evil. Now, what about us? Well, I mean, it's not quite there. <laughs> We're not in that context of persecution, but people will do anything to get power and to keep power these days. And they, the days of, of logical and intelligent conversing, boy, those are, I can't remember those days. There's been a very few times in American history where actual practicing Christians were in a minority. We're in a minority, the real Christians. And even in those various times of history, even in recent history, there's been, a, I guess, a little bit of tolerance or, or grace given to people that have different views or values. No, 
Now there's just rising hostility. If you practice a biblical faith, you will most likely be shamed and even condemned. It might very well cost you a lot. And maybe this could be the easiest time to practice real biblical faith for the next 70 years. I don't, I don't know, but I know that anyone that believes in moral absolutes, Jew or, or Christian, anyone who believes that the Bible is from God, I think we've got some hard times coming. We're going to be mocked or shamed or punished for those values. And so what we need is we need a book. We need a book to help us thrive in times of trial. And a book needs to be written by a pastor that cares or like a shepherd, Peter, shepherd my sheep, I will. It needs to be written by a coach that can encourage us. That's First Peter. And Peter is going to bring us hope. That hope is going to be the means by which we can live and thrive. First Peter, how do you thrive in difficult times? How do you thrive in, during trials? He says this right out of the blocks. It's who you are and it's what you have. Who you are and what you have. Peter starts so aggressively. He just comes out with like a cannon in verses 1 and 2 and says, this is who you are. Read with me. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are God's elect exiles in dispersion in these are areas, in Pontus, in Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Austin, according to the foreknowledge, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I mean, look at that. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, before he says his greeting, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, he, he wrote a dissertation in theology. Look at all that he's rolling out here. Look who he says that we are. He says we're an elect exile. No, some translations say God's elect exile. Uh, another translation says chosen foreigners. So Peter's saying this. God has chosen you to be here now. And so the fundamental issue, the question, do you know who you are? And do you know what it took? <laughs> do you know what it took to make you that, to get you here now? Because I think it's very easy for any one of us to just kind of drift off and go, boy, I feel like I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. I'd love to live some other time or some other place. And Peter's saying, are you kidding? Look at this powerful blast of theology. He says, it, you're here now as, as a chosen exile by the foreknowledge of God the Father, saw all this coming, by the power of the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, because of the obedience of the Son who sprinkled you with blood. So he's, he's saying this. He's saying in a single sentence, he's bringing the whole Trinity in. He says the Trinity itself has conspired to get you here now as an exile, a chosen exile. Listen, th this is thick vocabulary that we're using. And the reason is, is because Peter says who you are will determine what you do. That's why he's spending this time here. Who you are determines what you do. Look how exalted the Christian is. Here's a great quote. 
The primary import of these three clauses is to open up clearly at the onset of this epistle, the transcendent origin, nature, and purpose of the church and its life. Boom. The transcendent nature, purpose, and origin of you here now, according to God's holy writ, that's what he's saying. We're according to his his declaration, excuse me, we are exiles, sojourners, aliens, strangers, foreigners. And it's always been that way for the church. So there's been some exceptions when it was easy to be in the church or the Christians were a majority, but that's happened maybe in your lifetime here in the States. But listen, when you're a minority and you're persecuted, the Bible's written to you, and now you can kind of understand what we're talking about, like First Peter here. It, it's written towards people that are in exile, and they, they know they are. Who, who are you? <laughs> who you are determines what you do, and you're a God-chosen exile. And here's what is tempting for Christians to do. He's choosing these words in, carefully. It's exile. Because what Christians do sometimes in times of difficulty because they want to fit in, they don't want to feel different, is they like, uh, I'm going to like imitate the culture. I'm not going to be an exile, I'll be an immigrant. Yeah, I'll be an immigrant over here. The immigrants over here, they, they, they're from another place, that's their home. They come over and they go, this is our new home. We're going to learn the language, we're going to buy a house like the Joneses, I'm going to you know, maybe spend more money than I ought to, because everybody in our culture spends more money than they ought to, and they, uh, I don't know, I'll be compulsively obsessed about my reputation and what other people think about me. I'm going to try to fit in as much as I can, right? That's what an immigrant does. I'm going to just blend in eventually, and Christians do that too. They're trying to blend, they're trying to be the cool kids, and Peter says, no, you're an exile, not an immigrant. Now, there's another extreme over here, and that's when Peter's saying, look, you're a foreigner, not a tourist. You know how when you tour, you're not even trying to be like the people. American tourists are most famous for this, right? You go over there and you just you stay together. You're visiting that country. Nice place to visit. Wouldn't want to live here. I'll be out of here soon enough. And so, like, they don't make connections with the people that live there. They don't even try to learn the language. I mean, Americans, I love this because we'll go to Italy and then try to stay in an American hotel to eat American food in Italy, you know, and just like expect everyone to do what we want them to do. If there's something socially or politically out of kilter in some injustice taking place in that place, what do we care? It's not our town, not our country. And Christians sometimes do that too. They just, they're just going to be tourists. I'm in and out of here waiting for Jesus to come back. Till he does, I'm going to find a group of people, and we're just going to all just speak our little Christianese and have our little Christian community, and that's it. Peter's saying, no, that's, that's, that's not who you are. Peter says, who you are determines what you do, and you are exiles. You are aliens. You are foreigners. Heaven is home. Got it. But this place, you're going to live here for a while. Don't make it home, but by all means, invest in the community. Get involved in relationships. Learn the customs. Enjoy the customs as much as ethically possible. But listen, you're going to feel different. You're supposed to feel different. You're supposed to 
not fit in. And you're going to want to fit in, but don't be the cool kid. You're not going to fit in. He's setting expectations. That's what he's doing. He's saying, as an exile, you, you, you understand you're living for a different kingdom. So you're going to have different values, and you're going to have a different authority to submit to. You're going to have different goals, different calling, a different reason to live. You're going to have a different perspective. You're going to have a different paradigm. You're supposed to. Who you are determines what you do. You are chosen as an exile. And you are chosen by the wisdom of the Father's foreknowledge. We are being continually sanctified by the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. Excuse me. One more time. We're chosen by God's foreknowledge, the Father's foreknowledge, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and then we are, right, because of the obedience of the Son, who gave himself and bled for us. So he uses, like in just two sentences here, three parts of the Holy Trinity to tell us who we are and, who's we, and who we belong to. Now, that's like, that's just get to, to the greeting. Now he's going to talk about what we have, who you are and what you have. That's how we thrive. And in this context, Peter's going to show himself to be what some people call the apostle of hope. I love that. They'll say, Paul is the apostle of faith. John is the apostle of love. That's what they write the most about. Peter is the apostle of hope because Peter's going to come to us and bring us this hope to live for because the context of what he's talking about, we need hope. I want you to know he's, this is going to be so thick, so dense with meaning. I want to tell you what you're about to hear. He's going to talk about what we have is a living hope. And that living hope is salvation, but it's the thoroughness of all that salvation is past, present, and future. And he's going to say that salvation is the envy of the Old Testament saints and even angels in heaven. He's going to say what you take for granted, angels wish they had. Watch verses 3 through 5. Blessed be The God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. There's that living, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's talking about this living hope. Can't say another word about hope until I tell you what hope means. Because when we use the word hope, quite commonly, we use hope to, uh, to, towards something that could or could not happen in the future. Right? So we, uh, when I was in high school, I hope I could get into college. No one really knew. My parents sure didn't think I could. So I was hoping for that. That's not this hope. In the Bible, when, the, when we talk about hope, it's about It's a longing for something that is certain to happen. So uh, a a, a groom, like on his wedding day, is in the back where the grooms and the groomsmen are. He's in his tuxedo. The music started. He's fidgety. What's the matter, groom? He goes, I hope to be married. It's going to happen. He's just really looking forward to it. That's what he's talking about hope here. And the reason hope is so important, especially in times of trials, and suffering, but also in times of persecution, is hope is the blood that our soul lives on. 
Hope is the blood that our soul lives on, and you better be careful about what you choose to be the object of that hope. And so Peter's saying, look, your hope as a follower of Christ, you have a living hope. That hope, that living hope, he's saying that because it's hope beyond death. He's saying it's a hope that goes into the next life, and that's why he's appealing to the hope based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus continued on past the grave. That's a good thing to have hope in. Hope is the blood that your soul runs on. You must be careful of what the object of that hope is. Often you don't know until that hope is dashed. There's a wonderful study of hope by Dr. Viktor Frankl. You might know that name. He was an Austrian Jew that was taken by the Nazis, and he spent quite a bit of time in Auschwitz. And as a doctor, he reflected later on those times. He wrote a book called Man's Quest for Meaning. In that book, he reflects back and watched and just tells stories of how people lived in those death camps in times of absolute despair and how they chose to wake up the next day. He said some people would give in to evil and just like it's Darwin, you know, survival of the fittest, and they'd become angry and, and ugly and they would abuse their fellow prisoners. Other people, he said, more common was people would just give up. And it was sad and unpredictable. He writes this in his book. It usually, uh, usually this happened quite suddenly. The symptoms were, which were pretty familiar to us here in Auschwitz, we, we saw and we feared the moment when our friends, usually it happened like this. It began in the morning when a prisoner was simply, and he would, the simp- a prisoner would simply refuse to get dressed or, or wash or go out to the parade grounds for inspection. And no in- entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect on them. They would just lay there. They'd given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had no hope. And then Dr. Frankel writes about the people that lived through Auschwitz and then got home, and they'd, they'd put their hope to survive that, that persecution in maybe seeing their family or returning to a community or getting you know, their profession back and starting life over again. And when they got back and they were freed and they returned home, their family wasn't there. The profession was irrelevant. Their communities were dispersed. And many of those people fell into Great Depression. Some, many of those committed suicide. And so Dr. Frankel writes this, the ones who truly overcame Auschwitz had their hope fixed on something beyond this world. Had their hope fixed on something beyond this world. That's the power of hope. (laughs) Hope is the blood that our soul runs on. Viktor Frankl says this, he goes, life in the concentration camp tears open the soul and exposes its depths and its foundation. Tears open its soul and exposes its its depths and its foundation. Peter would say, persecution, trials, tears open the human soul and exposes its hopes. And Peter's saying, you you need to have your hope in this God-given salvation, all of this salvation. And that's why, again, it is just so thick with meaning here because in just these few verses, Peter's already talked about the fullness of salvation, past, present, and future, all of salvation and all that it includes. He talks about... um, uh, justification. This is in cr- kind of chronological, if you can think that way. Salvation talks about 
the past. The word is justification. Justification means a moment in time when you trust Jesus Christ to be the payment in full for your sins and his resurrection proves that, you are made what's called positionally righteous. You are declared, it's a, it's a judicial word, that you are declared righteous in the eyes of God. That's about your past. And uh, Peter's saying here, yeah, that's, that's freement from the penalty of sin. That's justification. And that's why he said, he's talking about the past. So he said, the father ca- uh, caused you to be born again in past sense. You were born again. Then he goes to the present and he, says, and he talks about sanctification through the spirit. Sanctification is kind of a fancy theology word and it means becoming like Christ in all of life. That's the phrase we use here. But it's talking about the present. It's talking about the day in and day out of trusting God to overcome the power of sin. That is the penalty of sin. This is the power of sin. And it's through the Holy Spirit that we become more like Christ. And then in the same passage, he talks about the future of salvation. That's called glorification. And that's talking about, he'll use two words in this uh, section here uh, about the second coming of Christ or the apocalypse or the final judgment. And he's, the glorification of sin is about the very, it's the absence of the very presence of sin. Glorification is the absence of the presence of sin. In other words, our spirit makes it to heaven and it's already been cleaned, but our soul, it it's still contaminated. And in the context of glorification, we, we don't have to deal with our pride or our vanity, our insecurities, our fears. That's the future salvation. So when Peter says who you are and what do you have, he's saying you're an exile that's been chosen by the Trinity. And he's saying, what do you have? Salvation. <laughs> and that salvation is past, present, future. And it's your inheritance. And look what he says about that inheritance. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Imperishable. It cannot be destroyed. Undefiled. It will not be spoiled. Uh, Unfading. It lasts forever. It never grows old. It never gets weak. It never gets boring. That is protected by, it says, it's protected by God's own power. God's own power is protecting you. So, Who you are, that'll determine what you do. Who are you? You are a God-chosen exile. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all conspired to make that happen. What do you have? (laughs) What do you have? You have salvation, the fullness of salvation. Justification, sanctification, glorification. The past is dealt with, the present, the future is awaiting you. In five sentences, that's all. I mean, I'm exhausted. How about you? I mean, we're into this thing five sentences. And he's talked about our, our life where we got to know Christ, where we are now becoming like Christ, and we will see Christ. We will be with Christ. And when we keep that in mind, if that's right, our North Star, then we can thrive in the context of persecution and during trials. That's what he's saying. Now he's going to bring up trials. Now he's going to talk about uh, what they can be used for. Now he's going to say, look, rejoice in trials. Here's why. Because they can perfect this very faith that we've been talking about. Don't look at them as something bad. Look at that, them as something you can use to make you more like Christ in all of life. So that's that. now he's now who we are, what we have. Let's see what, how trials fit into this. Verse 6 through and 7, I think. He says, like, okay, in, in this you need to rejoice. 
though now for a little, just now for a little while if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Yeah, right, I lost my family. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, and your faith is more precious than gold that, that perishes uh, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, there's the word apocalypse, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Peter saying what Jesus said. When Jesus, his, when Jesus was here, especially in, in, towards the end of his ministry, he was saying, look, I'm not going to save you from persecution. I'm going to save you for persecution. I'm not going to save you away from trials. I'm going to save you for trials because those trials will make you stronger. Jesus said in John 16, truly, truly, you will weep and mourn while other people rejoice. <laughs> Let me say it another way. Jesus didn't promise a rose garden. He promised us a gold refinery. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. And he said, take heart, because I've overthrown this world. Peter's saying this is a metaphor. As gold is refined by a fire, constantly turning it up and making it pure, genuine faith is refined by trials. You don't know the purity of, a goal, of gold. You think it's looking great until you turn up the heat. And then you see what's real, and you see what's ugly. And now you can continue to purify that gold. When I look back over the last year to three years of, of my sin, it's almost always in the context of, of some kind of setback or in a place of deep sorrow or when I was afraid. And, and I can look back at those times and hate myself or sulk about it or whatever it might be, but Peter's, this is the coach in Peter saying, no, 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 no. Don't look at those times. You have a genuine faith. Don't look at those times as anything but an opportunity to see what needs to be redone. Those are areas where you didn't trust in who you are or what you have. You were sulking because you want to be like everybody else, and they got ahead of you, and so you made really dumb choices. Right, I forgot who I was. Or, right, I d didn't, you know, didn't appreciate the fullness of my salvation and made bad choices. Dude, he's a coach. I love good coaches because good coaches will tell you there's no losing. There's winning, there's learning, but there's no quitting. There's winning, there's learning, but there's no quitting. You come off the field, and they scored more points, let's learn something from this. Peter's saying, Coach Peter's saying, hey, my brothers and sisters, those of you with a genuine faith, there's no losing. There's winning, there's learning, and there's no quitting. And so when business struggles are showing the worst of you, it's just someone turning up the heat saying, do you not know who you are, or do you not know what you have? When uh, marriage difficulties show up and you are showing yourself to be, what, what you tell me? Selfish? <laughs> Usually. It's like, there we go. Do you not know who you are? Do you not know what you have? Peter just keeps coming back because that's how you endure hardship. And your health is not getting better, but it is getting worse. And you find yourself expressing it in ways that you should not. Peter's saying, okay, there you go. Let's talk about that, how it applies to your genuine faith. 
What I love about Peter here in these next two sentences is Peter is just this classic coach that's cheering his guys on, holding his sign up, because he's just going to state what they know to be true. He's just reminding them of what they know to be true so that they can persevere under persecution. Look what he says in 8 and 9. He goes, look, 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 look. Though, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. The outcome of your faith is salvation of your souls, the full salvation of your souls. So just to review, how do you thrive in times of difficulty and times of trial? It's who you are and what you know and what you have and what you have. And what you have is a past that has been declared righteous, this present joy, he says, and a future inheritance that is stored away and is protected by God and his power. This salvation that we already have, Peter now is going to say, it has always been the envy of the Old Testament saints and even the angels in heaven. What you and I often, often either don't understand, but certainly don't appreciate, is what tens of millions of people longed to have, and even the angelic world. Look what it says. Now, concerning the salvation, what we have, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Those Old Testament prophets, they were serving us by telling us what Jesus was going to be like and what he needed to do. In things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look at. Peter, of all people now, just relishing in the sacrifice and the sufferings of Jesus. Peter, here's a great quote. Peter, who wanted nothing to do with Christ's sufferings during his lifetime uh, with Jesus, has made Jesus' suffering and his death the very center of the explanation of Jesus' earthly work. <laughs> Peter, the one that's saying, you're not going to the cross. Now he's saying, yeah, let's talk about the cross. That was the hub of what he was, that's why he came here. He's saying, the Old Testament saints, they didn't completely understand a suffering Savior, but we get to see that. And if his suffering led to glory, our suffering, suffering will lead to glory. What I love is that last little phrase, he just drops in there and he says, uh, what does it say, uh, all of angels, and things to which angels long to look. <laughs> imagine what it's like to be an angel and some of the things they've seen and they're longing to look into our salvation. They were there at creation. They've seen a lot of miracles, maybe all of them. I mean, a private first-class angel has seen more than we could ever imagine. And an angel, you sit down, have lunch with him when you get to heaven and say, well, like of all the things, what do you, what do you really want to know? It's, I want to know about that salvation in you. I, we don't get to do that. The past justification, like how you work through your sanctification, the future inheritance of your glorification, that's, angels look down and wish they could be part of that. That's what we have. That's who we are. 
And so Peter here is saying, my brothers and sisters in Christ, would you expect to feel different? To be left out? You should be homesick. You should. It's good to be homesick. To not want to be here and just like, this place is broken and it's not for me. There's... There is no place like home, and this is not home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. You know that line? Yeah. Remember this young lady from Kansas? Dorothy? Yeah. This is where she lived. Kansas. That was home. This was not home for her. This was a place called Oz. And when she got to Oz, she said to her little dog, Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Yeah. You think? And I don't know. Maybe she was surprised, but she shouldn't have been. But she was persecuted and hunted. She encountered various trials, like those flying monkeys, okay? And why? Why would she get all that? Well, you remember this character in the storyline? Uh-huh. She's Satan, right? So this land is cursed, and she is thrown in there as an exile. And so her temptation, it's like, like don't be a tourist, Don't just, like, get out of here as fast as you possibly can. Why? Because the story needs more to it. These are some people that need help. (laughs) There's people that are enslaved and entrapped here. Somebody needs to find out the truth about how this whole place works. That's going to be for you, Dorothy. You've got to be not a tourist. You're never going to fit in and, you know, just kind of try to act like one of the cool kids. No, that's not for you either. You need to be an exile, a foreigner, someone who comes in and makes a difference. Somebody who is an alien that knows their place. That's who she was. What'd she have? Uh, She had some slippers, right? (laughs) And the slippers were given to her so that she'd remember she was not alone and that she could call on the good witch, I think, as the story goes. But Oz never gave nothing to the tin man that he didn't already have. They already had it. They already were. That's the punch. That's the point. Here's a bigger point. You're Dorothy. I'm Dorothy. We're not in Kansas anymore. That's who we are. We're supposed to feel really out of place. We're going to be persecuted. We will probably suffer various trials. And what we have, we have a, we have a salvation that is so wondrous and glorious that the Old Testament saints long for it, and the angels still stare down at us. It's a salvation that includes our past, our present, and our future. The penalty of sin, right, the power of sin, and the absolute presence of sin is vanquished, finally. And with all of that, who you are, Dorothy, and what you have, you go make God proud. That's what Peter's saying to us. You, you do this right. So you'll enjoy the only life you have a chance to live. Peter's saying, buckle up, church. You're going to have to learn how to smile through difficult times. So if you didn't get tenure, what'd you expect? We're not in Kansas anymore. Because you have a set of values and beliefs, and that's not even coming up on your, just on your, on your review, but it's going to be penalizing you anyway. Yeah, what'd you expect? You're not from here. You serve a different king. You have a different set of values. You're going to experience things that other people don't experience. Dating's different. Life is different. You're going to feel homesick. And that's why Paul ends one of his letters 
with this word, Maranatha. The word means, come, Lord Jesus. There's a guy that's homesick. So, Grace, let's be homesick together, right? Who we are, we're exiles and foreigners. What do we have? Let's investigate that together. The fullness, the riches, the depth of our salvation, because that'll change our lives. That'll give us courage. That's a hope. That's a hope that our souls can run on. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, foresaw before the beginning of time, before creation, that you foresaw me, every person here. You foresaw us and you chose us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are sanctifying us because of the obedience of the Son who died for us and have covered us with his righteousness. And we are grateful for what we have. We have a salvation that includes our past, present, and future. It includes all aspects of who we are and what we do. Lord, I'd ask that that part, that salvation, would saturate our souls and be purified through trials and persecutions so that we might live a life that is glorious, even for the angels to wonder and watch. Let us be that type of Christian that endures suffering well. We pray this in Jesus' holy name because we can. And everybody said...